Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's November 14th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Michael Warren and John McCormick of the Weekly Standard. Have you guys gotten over the, I don't know, the hangover of the election yet? Not yet? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, we're already on <laughs> to 2020. Like, yeah, move on. I'm yeah. done. You know, it's, I mean, David Byler had a very good piece. I think there still is a lot to be done in terms of analyzing what actually happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Byler looked at, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. And I think there's even still more to be done. You know, did did Trump's base actually show up? Did the Democratic base yeah. show up and not and not the same numbers? I mean, I think there's still some more digging to be done to figure out exactly how ominous See, my, this is for my, Trump. My question is, why is it so ridiculously hard to count votes? And I was talking about that with somebody this morning. You, you know, the end of World War II when the, the the you know when the Brits had the 1945 general election and and half the half the population was spread all over the planet, they managed to count the votes. And here we are in 2018, and it takes what California just on a regular basis it takes them a month to count votes. I mean, coming after this, there, there's got to be a better system. My fear here is that everything we're seeing is going is sort of a dress rehearsal for 2020. And I know that neither party can restrain themselves from trying to cast doubt on any elections they lose. It seems like everybody's got an excuse for losing an election in their pocket, whether it's voter suppression or voter fraud. But can you gentlemen imagine what a 2020 presidential election would feel like if we if it came down to Broward County? Oh, not good, Charlie. No, not good. It's like you re- it's like you reached good. into my nightmares and uh, and and they described exactly what they are. I I, I don't know. It's like it, it is frustrating because everybody seems to do this uh, for for races that they don't like. So uh, you know, everybody was praising in in, in the mainstream media. Um, you know what Martha McSally, uh, the Republican yeah. who lost in uh, in Arizona, she was getting pressured. Uh, supposedly by the White House, by others to to contest her her loss to Kirsten Cinema, and she didn't. She said she she had this message on on Facebook, and everybody praised her. Wow, this is really you know she 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 withheld uh, or she you know she she sort of held back the uh, uh, where where the party wanted her to go on this. Um, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? And then today we had Sherrod Brown, the uh, senator mm-hmm. from Ohio. Um, who's who's being talked about as presidential uh, nominee in twenty in twenty uh, twenty I guess um, who's who's saying if Stacey Abrams loses the uh, race in, uh, for for governor of Georgia it was stolen and this is uh, you know this is an outrage I, I mean it's it's like that it, there, there's no sort of uh, sense from from those mainstream media folks that um, well same thing it's yeah. the same thing here but 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 because this is a Democrat that that we're supposed mm-hmm. to uh, we're supposed to just accept that it's it's probably fraud and it was a stolen election yeah, well listen this is da- this is really dangerous stuff I mean you want to talk about uh, you know the threats to democracy this this chronic delegitimization of the results of of elections you know at a certain point you know democratic systems rely upon faith and trust they're very thin they're very fragile and you know again 2020 where the stakes and the emotions are high if everybody's all geared up to say you stole this you know we don't you know you're not legitimate and and yeah let's just take a moment to to praise the people who did the right thing i you know in 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 arizona you have doug ducey you have sally you had mcsally who did the right thing in the face of all of the pressure and and we're at a moment where 
I, I do think we need to almost go out of our way to praise people who do the right thing since there are so many incentives for people to do the 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 wrong the wrong thing here. I mean, you know, unfortunately, the, the the reward structure is totally, totally skewed here. And by the way, speaking of the right thing, and John, I wanted to talk to you about this. Dan Crenshaw, new, you know, newly minted congressman out of Texas, goes on Saturday Night Live, which usually is going to end badly for a conservative Republican. And it was actually one of this rare grace moments. And the reaction to it is so strong because it's so unusual. And I think we're so hungry for it. Yeah, it was a great moment all around. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing most of our listeners have now seen it themselves. If you haven't, mm-hmm. you should go watch the entire four-minute clip. Uh, it both manages to be very funny. Uh, Crenshaw sincerely accepts the apology of Pete Davidson, who had mocked him the week before for wearing an eye patch. Obviously, Crenshaw lost his eye uh, fighting for the United States uh, as a Navy SEAL in Afghanistan in 2012. Um, but uh, one of the best moments was when Crenshaw actually extended this compassion and generosity to Pete Davidson, who whose father had died in 11 as a hero and I didn't even know that mm-hmm. I knew that I knew that Davidson's father had died in 911 I didn't know he had actually done so as a hero, as a firefighter, no, to save no, lives. no idea. And no. so I thought that that was no. really, um, it was it was really something. Um, and I think that it it does show that there is a lot of hunger out there uh, for a return to basic decency. And uh, just we're so we're so used to both sides turning up the outrage meter uh, that when someone goes the opposite direction, it just it really it was impressive. Yeah, but John, it was you, 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 you reported on this in the past, though, and that Crenshaw almost didn't get that seat because all of the, the establishment uh, activist Republicans were supporting someone else for uh, someone else in that, in that Republican primary. Yeah, so I think it was an early March primary, and it was one of these races where the, if no one gets 50 percent, then the top two advance the runoff. And everybody thought that this GOP activist named Kathleen Wall was going to win the race. She had dumped $6 million for her own money into it. Ted Cruz backed her. Greg Abbott backed her. Mm-hmm. It was an open seat, too. This was Ted, Ted Poe, yeah. the, yeah. the, the, the mm-hmm. Republican who held the seat, was retiring. So and he had like a, a whole, like, what was it, like 13 people actually ended nine up? Nine or so. But And so then there's a state representative, Kevin Roberts, who had the backing of the NRA. And Crenshaw was just one of these nine people. He didn't have basically any money in his campaign. He ran a shoestring budget and his his gimmick his, uh, to get attention for his campaign went to literally run 100 miles through this long district that snakes in and around Houston. That got him just enough t- attention. I mean, some places like the Weekly Standard, the Free Beacon wrote about him. He got on Fox News. Dana Perino had him on. And then um, $100,000, which is tiny compared to the woman spending $6 million, $100,000 ad buy by an outside uh, group came in at the last second. And sure enough, Dan Crenshaw ends up advancing to the mm-hmm. runoff by 145 votes. The woman who spent $6 million came in third place. Uh, so that shows you a couple things. One, that money actually can't buy an election if the candidate's really that bad. But two, uh, money does kind of corrupt our perceptions of elections, right? I mean, if, if Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott were, you know, if they had spent five minutes talking to them or their top staffers yeah. had spent five minutes, they would have realized that Crenshaw was just, you know, head and shoulders above above sure. Kathleen Wall in terms of Well, you, you and, posted that, right? Mm-hmm. You, you posted a, a little uh, excerpt of, of her as Kathleen Wall making a presentation at a debate or a forum or something. And, and I think – I don't think it's unkind to say she was, she was really, really awful. <laughs> She could basically I mean, couldn't I mean, string was, a couple I mean, sentences really, together. Really, really awful. She could not string together a sentence. She had a couple of bromides that she couldn't even make sound coherent. And it's like this is the woman 
who was endorsed by the big feet in in Texas. They thought she was going to be a congressman. And, you know, the only takeaway is, is that the only thing this woman had going for her was the money because, wow. I mean, $6 million to end up in third place in a Republican primary. That's and she a, deserved it, though. Oh, totally. Hey, before we go on, we're looking for some good news. Uh, shout out, uh, correct my pronunciation, uh, Naomi Rao. Yes, is that's that, correct. Naomi Rao, who used to write for the Weekly Standard, has just been nominated to Brett Kavanaugh's seat on the D.C. Circuit. And uh, as John Podoritz points out, uh, not even the taint of her association with the Weekly Standard apparently was enough to hold her back. It what? gives a lot of us hope. Um, that means I, all I have to do is now go to law school, and that gives me a full eight years to make it from law school to the D.C. Circuit Court uh, by the same age right. that Naomi well, Rao has. As I like to say, Charlie, you know, some people succeed being reporters here at the Weekly standard and some of them fail and have to go on and be federal judges and i just think you know that's that's just it's a tough place to work here that's that's the you know it's a good it's a good consolation prize right exactly. hey, by the way if, if you notice how noisy it is here i'm, I'm actually broadcasting from 30 rock I'm, I'm in one of the green rooms and they're apparently reconstructing all of the studios here behind me so if you're wondering what little the heck if i'm in a war zone there, or something charlie it's like uh so ju- just uh, at uh, when we started doing this uh, kevin with the got the news uh, kevin mccarthy uh, the new Minority Leader of the House of Representatives beats uh, Jim Jordan by a vote of 159 to 43. So 43 would be sort of the diehard Freedom Caucus number there. Any surprise? I'm um, not really. No, no, not not really. I mean, McCarthy has been savvy in in the sense that he has sidled up to Donald Trump uh, pretty much since day one, um, uh, and, uh, and 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 I think has blunted any criticism from. Um, from mm-hmm. from from people who aren't in that diehard Freedom Caucus, that you know he's not sufficiently uh, with the president. I, 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 he's he's basically the closest friend that Trump has uh, on the House side on, on Capitol Hill. So uh, no no surprise at all. Yeah, I mean the one piece of good news for him losing the majority is he doesn't have to worry about uh, a speaker's election where a, a small number of Republicans can hold him hostage on the floor, you know, get to get to 218. As soon as you go into the minority, heck, all you need is a majority of the Republican caucus, right? You don't need 218 anymore. Um, we do have some other news today, uh, in, including the uh, Department of Justice, uh, the Office of uh, Legal Counsel issuing an opinion on uh, Matt Whitaker's uh, appointment. It's interesting that uh, that is not um, that is not de-escalating in any way. Interesting. You saw the news about Kellyanne Conway's husband, George Conway, who, speaking of escalating, has actually organized a group of conservative lawyers to speak out against the Trump administration, and they issued, they're called check, check and balances. And George Conway and the others issued a statement, we believe in the rule of law, the power of truth, the independence of the criminal justice system, the imperative of individual rights, and the necessity of civil discourse. We believe these principles apply regardless of the party or persons in power. And they, they, they rolled this out just as the Federalist Society prepares to begin its convention. It's signed by 14 conservative lawyers, including a former real acting attorney general, Pete Keisler, who served in the Bush administration. So, uh, now, uh, Michael, you, you have a piece up about the this uh, Office of uh, Legal Counsel uh, opinion. This is going to be litigated, isn't it? This, this question of whether or not the president can appoint an acting attorney general who has never been confirmed by the Senate. 
Right. I think there's been a ton of criticism. You mentioned George Conway. He, um, uh, about a little less than a week ago, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times with Neil Kachal, um, sort of a, a liberal um, mm -hmm. uh, a lawyer uh, here in, in town, essentially arguing that this appointment is unconstitutional. John Yu uh, also wrote mm -hmm. uh, for The Atlantic uh, another, another piece about this. This is um, – you're hearing a lot of this – uh, questioning uh, because the uh, attorney general position is a is what's considered in the Constitution a principal officer, um, uh, somebody who is appointed by the president and who must uh, who must uh, be you know face advice and consent of the United States Senate. Um, that uh, uh, this appointment um, of somebody, the, Matt Whitaker, who was the chief of staff for uh, for Jeff Sessions before he resigned, um, somebody who did not face uh, uh, Senate confirmation for his current role at the Department of Justice. That this is uh, uh, this is unconstitutional. I think that's somewhat debatable. There's probably a narrow argument which the which the Office of Legal Counsel made in this opinion that they released today. Um, that essentially that um, I don't want to get in the weeds on it, but essentially that these two sort of competing statutes from Congress um, uh, uh, give some kind of uh, justification for this. But I think in the court of public opinion, uh, you kind of set aside Matt Whitaker himself and some sort of some of the shadiness about him the things that he said publicly about the Mueller investigation, which is the big concern that he's been brought in to uh, somehow wind that down. Um, I think the court of public opinion, uh, particularly among kind of legal types here in Washington, um, the, what the OLC released uh, today seems to be being greeted by, with a lot of skepticism yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and a lot of, yeah, a lot of skepticism from, from those folks who, um, who study this and know this stuff very well. Well, well, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on the podcast. But um, I want to get your sense of this. Bounce something off you, John, uh, because you know Michael used the term the the shadiness of of Matt Whitaker. Let's leave aside the the constitutional legal issue here. I argued last week, and I keep thinking about this because it, it, it seems like there's too much competition um, for for the position of the worst appointment in the Trump administration. But Matt Whitaker seems to be shaping up as the worst appointment. I mean, clearly there was no vetting done on this guy at all. He is a shady character, whatever the legality of his appointment is. And again, even leaving aside these possible conflicts of interest because of his comments on the Mueller investigation, it seems like every day there's another story about some, you know, grifter company he was involved in. Uh, there's now a report about, you know, some some housing subsidies that he received in Iowa that he walked away from. Um, it really is extraordinary, you know, in, in, in evaluating a really bad appointment is that he, he's not only – you know, clearly not suitable for high office, but not specifically not for this high office. It's that gap between this is the attorney general of the United States and where the hell did they get this Matt Whitaker? Yeah, I, you know, I haven't followed the the grifter stuff uh, closely, but I did like um, someone pointed, I think it was Ramesh Panuru, uh, that Whitaker had expressed the opinion both that he thought Marbury, Madison, the whole yeah. idea of judicial review was atrocious. And oh, by the way, the court should have you know, smack down uh, all the New Deal programs, um, which obviously many of them were unconstitutional. But oh, and nullification. This, yeah. States should be able to nullify federal laws. So it's uh, – yeah, well, we, 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 we fought a civil war over that. It didn't turn out well. I mean this is – Whitaker, yes, was, uh, was confirmed uh, like what? Like 16, 17 years ago uh, by the Senate for a, uh, uh, for a position as a U.S. attorney. Um, but uh, he, he's a – 
primarily a political operative and somebody who I think has been known to President Trump uh, uh, for speaking on CNN, specifically on fake news CNN, uh, out against the Mueller investigation. Now, you know, can you draw an absolutely straight line between those performances and his appointment here? Um, I'm sure. I, I mean, it's it, 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 try try not to draw, draw that straight line, you know. But <laughs> not a leap, not a leap. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think this is um, th- this is uh, this is what most people are concerned about. People on Capitol Hill, um, you know, the Democrats. Gerald Nadler is the um, is going to is the incoming chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, he's already said the first person that he's going to be bringing up, either requesting him to show up uh, in front of Congress or uh, to have subpoena. If they have to, is the acting attorney general. So um, this is something that's not going to go away. Um, it's got even Republicans in the Senate concerned. Um, they, well, they, they ought to be, and, and it's it's an insult to them. I, I was talking to somebody though, um, who's relatively, I mean, pretty knowledgeable about these sorts of things, and he said, you know, the only thing that's going to save Matt Whitaker is basically to do absolutely nothing, right. just sit in his office and don't take any action, because the moment he does anything, particularly with the Mueller investigation. All hell breaks loose on so many different fronts, internally in the Justice Department, um, with the United States Senate, which might remember its its prerogative. And, of course, these ongoing legal challenges with the state of Maryland with some pretty high-powered lawyers challenging him. So if, if you're Matt Whitaker, it's just like, just don't, don't move. Just, just don't touch anything. Just yeah. sit there and just don't, don't so, break anything. Absolutely. And, and I think there is this qu- interesting question kind of related to that, Charlie, which uh, was asked – um, at a press briefing this morning um, that I was I was on a call with with DOJ about this about this uh, particular uh, opinion, which uh, they refused to answer. Which is okay. He's the acting attorney general. We've never really been in a position, not since 1866, according to the DOJ, where somebody who's not essentially in line deputy attorney general, solicitor general, sort of is is in that acting AG role. Um, so what is what are the limits on his responsibilities? Mm-hmm. Is he going to be able to sign FISA warrants? Is he going to be able to do all those things? Um, the DOJ refused to answer those questions. I think those are really important questions for transparency purposes. Um, but but to your point, they may decide it would probably actually be in Whitaker's best interest um, to really pass all that stuff off to to the DAG to uh, Rod Rosenstein yeah. and on down the line, just if, if for no other reason than his own uh, security in that position. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Amazon for a moment. Anybody want to talk about Amazon? I, I want to talk about Amazon. Let's do the, it. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, on, on so many different levels. I mean, a lot of the focus, of course, is, is on the fact that they chose they chose New York. They, they chose Washington, D.C. because, of course, there's just not enough concentration of jobs and, and wealth in those communities. But also, the, once again, it's kind of the poster child for massive corporate subsidies. And, and 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 this this plays out in a way that seems so familiar to me. You know, the the explanation and the rationalization. First of all, that everybody does it. Everybody competes. It's like one state offers five billion dollars, the next state offers four and a half billion dollars, and they offer you know various other you know perks and everything because it's an arms race. I mean, I, I get that. And then there's this argument that that I heard a lot in Wisconsin with the Foxconn case as well, which is that well, yes, it looks like a lot of money, but it's really free because we're just spending money that we would not otherwise have because we're just going to be spending the money that will be generated by this economic development and by the jobs created and therefore it's not really a hit to the taxpayers but at the end of the day you still have the headline 
that you know governments are writing checks for billions of dollars to ridiculously large profitable corporations. Yeah, it's it's a real problem. I don't know how you get around it. Um, I saw you know Jay Cost uh, tweeting about this yesterday. You know how do we get around this problem? And it it occurred to me that one way you would get around this problem is if you had uh, no state and local uh, taxes and simply one very massive, powerful federal government where people can mm. get advantages from going to places. Obviously, that is not our system. We like yeah, our. We don't want system. that. No, we don't <laughs> want that. But uh, this is this is one function of having a uh, federalized system of government is that they can. Uh, obviously, they can't set their own, uh, you know, duties and tariffs. That's uh, against the Constitution. But they can set their own taxes and tax breaks and tax deals uh, for specific companies, and they will compete as long yeah. as uh, there's uh, some some benefit to to them politically but, but or, we, or economically. How, guys, yeah, how guys, how should we as conservatives feel about this? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is it is economic development. It is economic growth. It does, in theory, create jobs. On the other hand. This is government picking winners and losers in a rather spectacular scale. Charlie, I think it's time for some game theory. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, the the truth is, is that under the system that we have now, um, if these other municipalities, these other counties, these other states aren't offering these subsidies, somebody else is going to. And I think that um, for for better or for worse, that's that's a sort of a reality. So, uh, you know, Cleveland, right. uh, uh, you know, Atlanta, um, all of these other places were throwing just as much money. So it's the qu- a question of okay, whose money uh, does Amazon end up getting? Uh, and I think it is it is is very disturbing. It's not just the money and the subsidies, um, uh, but our colleague Jim Swift pointed out yesterday in a, in a piece that he had about this, um, it seems that Amazon is actually extracted from the uh, county of Arlington, where uh, in the Washington area, where, where this uh, new headquarters 2.5 or whatever mm-hmm. uh, is going to go. Um, a uh, actually, I think from the state of Virginia, actually, uh, the ability to sort of intercept the uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act type yeah. uh, 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 information, uh, so that that Amazon can be prepared. So, sort of the supplanting of local government, uh, I think, is disturbing. But I, I, I try to kind of take a um, uh, a realistic view of these things. If it's going to happen, um, uh, I think uh, of all the companies that uh, that you would want uh, to be planting in in, in say in my backyard, um, you could do worse than Amazon. I mean, it's, it's definitely a high education, um, uh, high income jobs. I mean, those are those are good jobs that any municipality would want to have. And that is the difference between Amazon and Foxconn. With Foxconn, there are still real questions about whether or not they're going to come through and follow through on these jobs. Isn't that right, right. Charlie? I mean, what's the latest right. there? Well, they are. And, and, and of course, the defense would, would be that, well, then they, the subsidies don't actually kick in until the jobs are created. So the, the, you know, there, there are protections about all of this. But it still is the transfer of money from you know, the state of Wisconsin or, in this case, New York and uh, Virginia and the local governments will be writing out checks to a private company. I, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the it's the way it's the way the, it goes. I mean, if you look back to say, um, Republicans loved uh, the message of Rick Perry and what he did as governor of Texas, um, and uh, and 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 people love to point to say uh, the state of the state of Louisiana or the state of Georgia making tax breaks uh, for the entertainment industry. Um, these are things that uh, that 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 
are just a na- the natural state of when when you have a federalized system, as John pointed out. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I think I, I I agree that it's it's icky, it's 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 kind of gross. Um, uh, but on the other hand, it's it's um, it's it's the worst system except for all the others. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe the other systems would include a free marketplace where you actually don't have these competing troughs with one another. And um, oh, here's just another issue, and maybe I, I, br- I bring to this the sensibilities of, uh, of a Midwesterner here, but the, the, the decision to locate in New York and, and uh, Washington, D.C., which I understand is because that, you know, that's, where, you know, that's where the jobs are. I mean, that's where the you know, qualified uh, college graduates, uh, the engineers are. But it certainly you know, takes these jobs and puts them in areas that are, well, let's just step back. You look at the entire country. Um, they've picked two areas that are probably not on the list of people that most needed the jobs. Now, am I sounding like a squishy socialist here? Um, it just seems that, that, that this is going to concentrate the wealth in a smaller and smaller area. And again, you know, if, if it's a private company in the free marketplace, fine, you know, what, you know, you know, that's, that's, that's the way that goes. But then when we have the taxpayer subsidy, there does seem to be questions. Um, I mean, what, what is this going to do for traffic in Washington D.C.? <laughs> yeah, I think. What is this going to? What wow, is this so going to make your housing? Prices? It's going to make some of the worst traffic in America even a little bit more worse. <laughs> That's yeah. that seems I'm to a, be what's. I'm looking. a I'm a pessimist, so I just assume that it's going to make the cost of the single family house I would eventually like to move into much much go up much much more than it will make the current townhouse that I live in. But also a hot real estate tip is that Huntington, Virginia, the end of the yellow line is a smart real estate buy. <laughs> yeah. The fact that Jim Swift lives down there and I live down there, that, that, that has nothing to do with it. I just think that's, if you want to throw a lot of money, you know, pay double, you know, right now. It's, yeah, I mean, it's I love the idea that the resale value of my house is, is, is already probably going up uh, as we speak here. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 it is bothersome. I, I don't mean to sort of downplay how bothersome it is that, that these subsidies are, you know, particularly in these sort of um, already wealthy areas. I mean, the, the counties around New York, counties around Washington, D.C. are some, among the wealthiest in the country. On the other hand, Amazon is thinking about where can it attract people? the best people. And um, it's it's a it sounds like a terrible thing to say and no politician would ever say it, but it's a lot harder to get those type of people to move uh, to certain cities um, uh, that that don't have the kind of amenities that those uh, employees well, want to have. Get the, yeah, I get that. I mean, the, but the chicken and the egg, of course, is that you bring 25,000 well-paid Amazon jobs and you'd be amazed uh, at the kind of investment that you might want to attract. I don't know. I guess I, I throw this almost in the category of, of sports stadiums and the totally the, the the obscenity of, of billionaire owners of NBA teams or MLB teams going to the taxpayers and saying you know you need to you you need to pay for um, my stadium um, you know John you I don't know have you have you been back to Milwaukee since the new bucks arena I opened was up? Th- I was there for the grand opening actually yeah, you so were I was I got to see Scott Walker and Tom Barrett on stage, and I believe that the NBA is the commissioner. Silver is that his name? Yep. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he bungled Tom Barrett's name. He said, and "We couldn't know this without Tom." <laughs> I forget what he said. You know, Tom Barnett. <laughs> Tom Barnett, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was a it was a pretty great moment. Um, and of course, Barrett is sitting there next to Walker, who beat him twice. But now <laughs> Barrett and the Democrats, of course, got the last laugh. Now the Walker. Yes, yeah, sort of. But yeah, they did. But you know, that that place is again, it's spectacular, and it's going to do great things for downtown Milwaukee. But 
the $250 million taxpayer subsidy for something that is owned by these New York billionaires. And um, I don't think I've ever showed you guys. I've ever showed you the picture of the ticket that I have from a Bucks game. No. Never showed you this. I actually have to show it to people because they won't believe me. It was somebody invited me to to sit on the floor. This was the old Bucks thing. This is not the new one. Okay, this is the old one. And we had floor seats, which were awesome. I mean, you were right next to the players. It's it is it is ridiculous. I mean, it's it, it will spoil you. But the face value of the ticket, and again, this is Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks, the old stadium. Just take a take a flyer, John. What what the ticket was? Sitting at at courtside, you said? No, yeah, right, right, right on courtside. Uh, yeah, two hundred bucks. Yeah, no. Come Six, on, Mike. Six hundred bucks. Yeah, come on, come on. One ticket. $1,000. Come on. <laughs> For a regular season game? Yes. $2,000. No, I'm sorry. No, okay. $1,500. Okay, there we go. There we go. So I took a picture of it <laughs> because I like doing this. And then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, the normal human being is never going to be here. It's just it, – this is ridiculous. Well, you we, know? Could, we could do a whole podcast on the way that these these sports stadiums – I agree. It's 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 actually a tragedy. I mean, if you look at, and I think we can all blame, and we'd be happy to do that. Uh, Jerry Jones, who started this yeah, whole trend of all of these, you know, elite boxes um, crowding out the kind of bench seating that that really built the NFL, for instance. Um, but I will say this, in again, to to be a total Amazon shill, because um, I kind of like this company. Um, there is there is actually no hard evidence that any of the subsidies that go to sports stadiums do any of the economic development that, that the people who no. ask for it claim. And the difference is is that um, there is a little bit more investment from a, a place uh, a company like Amazon. Um, there are promises that uh, that that uh, are are at least as good, if not better, than local governments' promises to uh, to beef up the um, uh, local subway system, the metro here, um, uh, and some more infrastructure. So at least you're getting a little bit of that, um, whereas the sports stadiums, none of that economic development really ever materializes, or if it does, it, it really has little to do with with the subsidy. So that's my yeah, that, that, that makes thing. it more. I guess, I guess it is the it, you know, and, and I, I don't want to sound like Bernie Sanders, but it's the the expenditure of of money um, in a way that. Um, well, it just it seems maybe not focused in the right direction. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound all Bernie. You Sanders sound like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Charles. No, no, wow. I, I I don't. Boy, <laughs> is she sucking up a lot of bandwidth? I mean, she's going to be entertaining, isn't she? To, totally. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of liked her not just for her her comments criticizing the Amazon uh, decision, but also she and her. Well, on the day of her orientation as a new member, she staged a uh, sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office. So, I mean, this is going to be really entertaining these uh, these next couple of years. Absolutely awesome. Okay, anything else has got you guys jazzed that you're going to be looking at watching over the next 48 hours or so? Yeah, I think we're going to. We talked a little bit about the vote counts earlier, but Florida, uh, the 16th is the deadline for all these overseas and military ballots. I believe as of a few days ago, there were 20,000 outstanding. Uh, that should cut. Uh, Scott's margin, but I don't think it will cut it to a margin where things get actually exciting. Uh, you know, in a recount uh, out of 8 million people voting, it would be very, very surprising to see more than, I don't know, maybe a thousand votes changing. Um, but you never know. I don't know exactly how many so-called uh, undervotes and overvotes there are out there where there is some discernible 
preference on there that may have not been picked up um, on these uh, machines, but I, I doubt it's going to be uh, big enough to, to change it several thousand votes. But we'll have a lot more clarity, I would say, in the next couple of days about what the vote count really is down in Florida. Okay, Michael, what, what, what do you think the over-under is on, on Whitaker being around a week from now? I think it's more than 50 um, at this oh, point. Okay. I, I, I really do. I mean, it's it, the inertia factor here, um, mm-hmm. unless there's something that really – um, that w- that we don't know about already. I think um, the the lame duck session kind of uh, actually makes him more likely uh, to to stick around for for a long while. But I actually like the uh, your suggestion from earlier in the in the show that he's he may try to keep his head down and 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 may not do what what some people on the Trump side want him to do and then some people who oppose Trump fear he might do shutting down the Mueller investigation. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask before I forget. Um, this is the problem of you know, rushing in here to do this. Uh, um, as, as, as I was flying here, I'm opening up my Wall Street Journal, looking at the op-ed page, and, and there is Marco Rubio saying that Trump is absolutely right in declaring himself a nationalist. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, you know, here, here is, is Marco Rubio going full MAGA. But, John, you wrote this story back in August, didn't you? Yeah. So, I mean, Rubio gave a speech, but I haven't had a chance to read the op-ed yet, actually. I didn't even know that it was out there today. Uh, but Rubio back in you know June gave a speech talking about the need for a new American nationalism. And it was much more of a rhetorical Move by on Rubio's part than a real, you know, a real ba- embrace of Trumpian nationalism. To the extent that he's actually changed his his policy positions is to become much more economically nationalist against as it relates to China, and he puts this all within the framework of being, uh, you know, concerned about China as a geopolitical uh, rival and that they are seeking to supplant us. And one way they can do that is through economic warfare. And so he's all about the trade war with China. But he still supports the the, the TPP deal, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Mm -hmm. because that excluded uh, China. So with Rubio, it's a a lot of um, rhetorical embrace of nationalism. You know, we used to talk about how, you know, these high-tech companies were a sign of American innovation and goodness. And now he talks about how they're unpatriotic and uh, lack morality and virtue. And uh, so, I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, the piece is called Rubio Goes Nationalist, if anyone wants to Google it and yeah. read it, um, on how he's moved. And David Brooks actually even uh, praised Rubio's speech, saying that this is exactly what America needs, a return to you know civic values and family and community and the nation. Uh, so it was, it was Brooksian nationalism, not Steve Bannon nationalism. I think the problem with that is that at the end of the day, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, the guys who called themselves nationalists first, and particularly the president, the guy who has the bully pulpit, they're going to be the ones who define nationalism in, in yes, the modern right. era. You know, you can't, it's not going to be Ramesh Panuru and Rich Lowry and Yuval Levin and Marco Rubio, as much as I understand them trying this to- This is a great point. Trying, this is a really can, can, can point. I, can they're, I, trying, they're trying to push nationalism in a good direction. I still find a huge value of making the distinction, as Jonah Goldberg does, between patriotism and nationalism. That, right. That, but it's easy to confuse them. Yes, I think Very. it's a useful it's a useful distinction. At the end of the day, you know, there's some sort of for someone like, you know, Rich Lowry or Marsh Pneur, they say it's it's foolish to make a distinction between a a good patriotism and a and a bad nationalism. But at the end of the day, they're also making a distinction between a good nationalism and a bad nationalism. I just think that given and furthermore, you know, words have their historical connotations. You can't you can't just pretend that like America right. first now. Oh, yeah, I want America to be first. What's wrong with saying America first? You know, I mean, well, yeah, I, I would like, you know, what would be wrong with saying I, w- 
I want a final solution to our immigration problem. You know, it's like words have meanings. They have, they have, they have uh, connotation, historical connotation. And I, I wouldn't say America first. I wouldn't embrace nationalism. Uh, you know, there are certain words that are are tainted and uh, and rightfully so. Uh, and to and to just bolster John's point here, I'm looking at the Rubio op-ed here, and it's it, the way he sort of describes nationalism would be entirely it would be like speaking a foreign language to Donald Trump you know it yes. like makes no sense he says you know it is uh, this is Marco Rubio it is through the nation that moral values can be upheld and sustained in America our ideals are deeply intertwined with our national traditions and institutions um yeah what 100 percent um is that anything like what Donald Trump means when he talks about nationalism uh, I mean Marco Rubio seems to sort of uh, claim it that that is right. so, but he's, he's uh, trying to he's trying to project that principled meaning onto Donald Trump. That's right, and I don't I don't think any anybody who pays attention to what Donald Trump says, and I think it, it, it is important to note that people who have a very, I think, twisted view of what nationalism means. Um, mm. They certainly don't hear that. What they hear no. uh, is is uh, a green light. And I think that is very, very concerning. We just had here in Washington a white nationalist who was arrested, who lives here, um, who was appearing at uh, at the white nationalist protest in, in Lafayette Square outside the White House just a couple months ago, um, uh, who was who was trying to follow on what happened in Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, supposedly, that's what uh, that's what the the, the, the police were saying so i mean these do have sort of real world consequences as well these words and and that's why we should be more careful not not more cavalier exactly and i mean ethno-nationalism is uh, you know a sub a subsection of nationalism no one gets confused but with patriotism no one no one thinks that you're uh, a racist or an ethno-nationalist when you used to talk about how much you're how patriotic you are that you you know that, that you love america i mean i think that you've even seen ethno-nationalism people that i used to really respect i mean somebody like mark stein in the last year year, uh, went on Tucker Carlson's show and said that, uh, I, I could be misquoting him slightly, but I'll paraphrase. He said, a majority of elementary school children in Arizona are Hispanic. It was New, it was New Mexico. New Mexico. Therefore, the border has moved north. Now, I will even Ooh. make a distinguish between assimilationism, which is good, and ethnonationalism. He didn't say, unless these children who you know, are born from foreign parents, unless they are brought up in the traditions and the values of America, the border has moved north. It was no, it was they are Hispanic, therefore the border has moved north. And that to me is a, it's a, it's a disgusting worldview. That, that is the textbook and, definition and a, of ethnonationalism. And a historical. Yeah, and this is a debate we totally need to historical. have as opposed to blurring and blending the meanings of these words. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just, it, it, I think it's a historical too. I mean, if you, if you, I think if you're a patriot, you can, you can recognize that, uh, uh, these sort of bad versions of nationalism that really, I think, end up, I mean, like the logical conclusion of them all are, are, are is ethno-nationalism is sort of this idea of sort of a, mm. a, 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 a white country. Um, that's the logical conclusion. It's so, it's so ahistorical to who, what the United States is. Um, and I think conservatives need to stand up and recognize that rather than try to transmogrify what 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 Donald Trump and his acolytes have have, have tried to take over and try to say that it is a good thing. I agree and by the way extra points for use of the word transmogrify. That's my favorite really. word. That, that's that, is that a real word? I don't know, but it, I, is, no, I no, use it, it. it is a real okay, word. Good. You, and and you used it correctly, I believe. <laughs> hey, I have a, I have to have a clarification though. Uh, something I said earlier uh, before the end of the podcast, I said that the single ticket price was $1500. For that uh, Bucks game, right? It was actually fifteen hundred and eighty dollars, <laughs> <laughs> but but you got free beer with it. Hey, there you go. 
there, there you go. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>